God, I ask that you would bless your word. Holy Spirit, come and speak and open our minds. Give us clarity of thought. Lord, open our hearts. May our hearts be changed. And God, would you give us a willingness to walk in the truth that you would show us this morning. May we see Jesus this morning. May you change us this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, imagine Osama bin Laden was still alive. Osama bin Laden, the ringleader of the 9-11 attacks, the leader who was anti, as anti as you could get, the United States of America. And imagine that bin Laden becomes the biggest advocate for the United States. He wants to move to North Carolina, and he wants to become a citizen of the United States of America, and all of a sudden he's this incredible American patriot. Now, that may be easier to imagine than a lifelong UNC fan who sees Duke win the national championship, and all of a sudden they become the biggest Duke fan. They start wearing Duke blue. They tell everybody Coach K is the best coach in the world. Can't wait for next year. Or maybe a, a Duke fan changes and converts and becomes an avid UNC fan. Wearing Tar Heel blue, excited to go to the Dean Dome, telling everybody UNC is the best school in the state. All right, that, those are pretty hard to imagine. What's harder to imagine for me is a lifelong Auburn football fan becoming a rabid Alabama fan. That just seems impossible, right, to, to switch. Those are unimaginable, too dramatic of a change. Bin Laden to this converting to a, U, a U.S. Patriot, right, a UNC fan converting to a Duke fan, Duke fan converting to UNC. The conversion that we just read about in Acts chapter 9 might be the greatest conversion story that we have recorded in the Bible. Verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, the, the author Luke of Acts depicts Saul in verse 1 as this fire-breathing dragon set on causing as much danger and harm to the followers of Jesus as possible. He's been persecuting the church. He goes to the high priest, asks for a letter that would, would enable him to find any Christian man or woman, bring them back to Jerusalem, and persecute them. And by the end of our passage, he is a follower of Jesus sent out to be on the mission of God to the world. This morning, I want us to look at conversion. Conversion to Christianity. Dramatic life change because of Jesus. I want us to look at how it happens and what happens as a result of conversion. Now, before we dig deeper uh, into this passage, I have to say this. Saul's conversion is not the prototype for everybody's conversion. Saul's story and testimony is not the story of every Christian. It's not meant to serve as some pattern for everybody's conversion. I, I think within certain Christian subcultures, I grew up in this, there is a pressure that is placed upon people to have dramatic conversion stories. I don't know if you've ever been around that before. As if there's prizes from the Lord on who had the most dramatic life change. As if there is some ranking on who had the most messed up life and then was converted to Jesus as they encountered the gospel. 
There's no standing in the kingdom of God based on dramatic conversion. You don't need to make up your testimony and conversion story to, to ooh and ah people. I want to just alleviate that pressure that I think sometimes we can feel. But I will say this if you're a Christian, if you say you're a Christian, we all need to be able to say that we have been converted, that our lives have been changed. It's not the story of it happening at the age of five or the age of 18 or the age of 55 that matters. What matters most is the reality that it's happened, period, that your life has changed. So let's look at Acts chapter 9, Saul's conversion, and learn what it teaches us about conversion. And the first thing that I want us to see, this is my longest point this morning, is that God works and prepares the way for conversion. God works and prepares the way. Saul's whole conversion is the story of God. Of God leading and directing every single event. God blinds Saul in verse 3. A light flashes around him. And then in verse 9, Saul spends three days without sight, neither eating nor drinking. The mighty, powerful Saul who was on this mission to persecute Christians, and then out of nowhere, God renders Saul powerless and helpless. Verse 8 says Saul had to be led by the hand. He's helpless. So the way God works and prepares someone is to get them to a place where, that they, where they realize that they cannot live life based on their own strength and ability. God works and prepares a person to, to a place where he makes them needy. And then when a person is in that place of neediness, God speaks and reveals himself to them in a loving, intimate, and personal way. Exactly what he does with Saul. In verse 4, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The double calling of Saul's name, Saul, Saul, is a unique thing in Scripture. God does it 15 times. Every time, Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses, Saul, Saul. God is doing it to deal with that person in an intimate way. Alcoholics Anonymous talks about the must. The must of hitting rock bottom. It's when you hit bottom that you can then turn and realize that there needs to be a change. And hitting bottom is when you realize you're powerless. And you need help. And Saul hits bottom. He's completely powerless. He needs to be led by the hand. He can't see. He doesn't eat or drink. In Alcoholics Anonymous, hitting bottom can happen after a long night of heavy drinking. But hitting bottom can happen in many ways in our lives. It could be you lose your job and you've hit bottom. Your marriage is rocky. You have a disobedient child. You have an issue with your child. You don't get into the undergrad or the grad school that you wanted. Money is extremely tight. Emotional struggles of depression or anxiety are overwhelming. And God is working to get us to a place of feeling powerless. And it's painful but it is ultimately for our good. Because when we know that we're needy, then we're ready to hear God speak our name and meet us where we are. 
You know, God not only speaks to Saul in this passage, He speaks to Ananias. And He calls Ananias to go to Saul and to tell Saul about the gospel and to bring healing to Saul. And Ananias is this person that we don't know much about. And even after this passage, Ananias isn't mentioned again in Scripture. See, God uses a no-name follower of Christ to convert one of the most notorious enemies of Christ. Here's a truth. God works in ways that we would never imagine and through people we would never expect. Most of us here know Saul. We've heard of Saul, also Paul. I'll use those names interchangeably this morning. Saul and Paul. But Ananias? Ananias get the recognition? Right? Did you grow up hearing a ton about Ananias? But without Ananias, we may not have a Paul. God worked through the willingness of Ananias. Though Ananias was rightfully scared, verse 13, right? He says, back to God, I've heard how much evil this man Saul has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He's nervous. But the Lord told Ananias to go. And he was willing to go in the face of his fear. Now you may be here this morning and you doubt that God could ever use you. You might fear that you don't have enough knowledge, enough knowledge of the Bible. You might fear that you're not smart enough, that you don't have enough experience, that you don't have enough money. Let me tell you a little of how God called me to vocational ministry. I don't know if any of you have heard this story, how I was called into the ministry. I was in college, uh, in a fraternity, uh, and in my fraternity in Auburn University, we had multiple Bible studies that were happening. And, uh, and there were four guys from our rival fraternity, Beta, Theta, Pi. Uh, and these guys, four guys, no Bible study going on in their fraternity, said, hey, we'd love a Bible study. We have no leader. Uh, there's nothing going on. We would love something to happen. Uh, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing as a sophomore in college. And I was nervous to go to this fraternity that I knew did not like me. And, but I, I said, I'll go. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll go pretty naively. And God grew that group in two years from four guys to 25 to 30 guys. Many who became my best friends who were converted. God used that time, those two years in college, my junior and senior year, to call me to ministry. And I was scared to death. I was scared to death. That sounds, maybe sounds stupid to go into this fraternity house scared to death, but I was. I was nervous. And, and the reason I share this is because it was not me. It was not me who worked in that fraternity house. God worked and grew that ministry. I just happened to be this no-name guy to these four men who was willing to go, and God worked. You know, I was, uh, some of you know, I was on staff with RUF for five years, and I was before that, before seminary, I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ for five years. And I still remember, where was somebody got a shout-out for for that, okay, okay, some people on staff with Campus Crusade, there we go. Um, and uh, I still remember an acronym taught uh, in Campus Crusade, now crew. They would say in ministry, what God wants is not someone who has all the knowledge, not somebody who's good looking, not someone who has the money or who has power. What God wants is someone who is fat. They'd use an acronym, fat. How many of you have heard this before? Some of you. F-A-T, not fat, but 
faithful in what God calls and asks, available, willing to go where and when God says go, and teachable, a willingness to learn and grow. Faithful, available, and teachable. So let me ask you this morning, are you faithful, available, and teachable? Are you willing to be used and willing to go when God says go? Because God will use you in ways you've never expected. The last thing I want to point out about God being the one who works and prepares the way for conversion is that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Luke, the author, tells us about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, which Timothy preached on a, a few weeks ago. The Ethiopian eunuch was seeking God, reading Scripture, looking for answers, and Philip shows up and explains the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's converted and baptized. God had made this Ethiopian eunuch just ripe and ready. Philip was the vessel to be used. But Saul, Saul's not seeking God. He's actually persecuting Christians. And the conversion of Saul seems impossible. I guarantee if you would have asked the disciples, of all the people that they would imagine never becoming a Christian, most would have said Saul. He hated Jesus. He wanted nothing to do with Christianity. Yet God works and prepares Saul to hear the gospel and be forever changed. Do you believe that God can do the impossible? In your life, God can do the impossible. The sins that you've struggled with, which seems like for years and years, God can work. Emotional struggles that you feel like will never change in your life, do you believe God can heal? Circumstances that it feels like you could just never get out of, do you believe God can do the impossible in your life? And do you believe God can do the impossible in others' lives? Are there people in your life right now, parents, children, spouse, neighbors, co-workers, friends, and it seems like they're just a lost cause. They will never be at a place where they know they need Jesus. God changed Saul into Paul. God can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. He is the one at work, and He is the one who prepares people for conversion. The second thing this morning that I want us to see is that Jesus is clearly seen and embraced in conversion. Jesus is clearly seen and embraced. Not sure if you've ever wondered why Saul was so opposed to Jesus. Why, why was he so opposed to the followers of Christ? That What got him so angry that turned him into this fire-breathing dragon that wanted to cause as much harm as possible? And Saul was of the strictest sect of the Pharisees. Philippians chapter 3, he gives his pedigree. He was circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, under the law, blameless. Saul was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Extremely educated, extremely intelligent, and very biblically literate. Paul knew his Bible inside and out. He knew the Old Testament very well. 
And so a Messiah comes to redeem His people. Jesus. And He would die on the cross. Saul was not familiar with that in the Old Testament. The the hope of Israel was not a Messiah who would come and die on a cross. Though there are references in the Old Testament, Israel missed it. In fact, Deuteronomy 21 says everyone is cursed who's hung on a tree. Everyone is cursed by God who's hung on a tree. Paul quotes that later in his book to the Galatian church. So Saul knows, right? Jesus crucified on a tree. He claims to be king. He claims to be this Messiah who fulfills the law and the prophets. But in Saul's mind, there is no way that could be the case because he is obviously cursed by God because he hung on a tree. And God speaks to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And Saul replies, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus. Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus appears and speaks to Saul. He encounters Jesus. And then three days, he's blind, without food, without drink. Now imagine with me, because I can only imagine what was going on on with Paul during these three days. This highly intelligent, extremely literate, biblical scholar, Saul is running through the whole Old Testament, his knowledge of the Old Testament, through his head and through his mind and through his heart, but now he's running it it through the grid of Jesus Christ. Now he's meditating on the Old Testament with the lens of Jesus. Verse 11 says he's praying. He is seeing how the whole Old Testament was about Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Christmas Story. I mean, you've seen that. That was, that was a tradition in, uh, in the Mason house. The, the Christmas Story, every Christmas we watched that. Uh, classic Christmas movie, Ralphie, right? Uh, Ralphie listens nightly to Little Orphan Annie, uh, the radio show, and there is a secret message given out every night on the radio show. And the way you can understand this secret message is that you have to have the little orphan Annie decoder, right? And he finally gets the decoder, and he can understand the secret message every night. It was the key to unlock the nightly message. Jesus Christ is the key to unlocking what the whole Bible is about. And it doesn't disappoint like the little orphan Annie Decoder. See, for Saul, the God he had followed and studied and prayed to, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, accomplished what he always said he would do. Redemption and salvation secured. But this God did it in a shocking and scandalous way through the suffering of the Son of God on a cross. Jesus was the key, and it opened up a whole new way of thinking and understanding the Bible and the world. See, in Jesus, Paul got the heart of Christianity. To be a Christian, it means that you place your trust and faith in Christ. And He is the one who died for your sins. And by faith in Jesus, God treats you as if you've paid for your sins. And Jesus was raised to a place of honor. And by faith in Jesus, God treats you as if you are as beautiful and honorable as Jesus. So Christianity is all about. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great Welch preacher, 
He gave an illustration. He said, he would ask folks, are you a Christian? And if their response would be something like, well, I'm trying, he would jump all over them. And he would say, then you don't know the first principle of Christianity. For Christianity is not something I did, but something that Christ has done for me. I am now in Christ. Later in Paul's life, he would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, that he saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I believe Paul was referencing this moment in Acts chapter 9. When Jesus appeared and revealed himself and the world was turned upside down, when he understood that Jesus is the central piece of Christianity. Many can waver on all kinds of issues in Christianity. And there are all kinds of secondary and tertiary issues within Christianity. But to be truly converted, you cannot waver on Jesus Christ being the center of everything. He is the one who must turn our worlds upside down. We must understand and embrace Jesus as King, as Savior, and as friend. The third thing in our passage is that entrance into a community, the church, is part of conversion. Entrance into a community, the church, is part of conversion. I don't know if you noticed how Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? I mean, Saul was persecuting Christians, right? Yet Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his people, with the church, that anyone who persecutes his people persecutes Jesus. And I've said this before here at Christ Central, is that you cannot have Christ and not have the church. You cannot have Jesus and not be a part of his community. Saul's conversion shows us that true conversion, faith in Jesus, means entrance into the community. In verse 18, it says something like scales fell from Paul's eyes. He regained his sight, he rose, and he was baptized. He was baptized. He ate food, strengthened, and spent time with his, the, the other disciples. And, and we've said this as well many times here at Christ Central. Baptism is the sign of entering into a visible community. Baptism is the sign and seal of being set apart as belonging to this visible community called the church. Saul was identifying himself with Jesus and the Christian community. People like to identify themselves with differing communities, don't we? And we use all kinds of signs to do it. Uh, Tattoos. Tattoos can be a sign, right, of belonging to a community. Biker clubs, right? If anybody here is in a biker club. Uh, but biker clubs have riding jackets with their club name and logo. They're a part of this biker community. CrossFit gyms, right, which I'm a part of one, have their own t-shirts, their own gear that identifies us with a certain community. I saw uh, just a couple weeks ago this downtown Durham running group, and they ran by as Rachel and I were walking around Duke's East Campus, and at least half of them had Run Durham t-shirts on, identifying them with this running community. Adam Klein gave me a t-shirt that I pose with that, is, that says the, the uh, Startup Hub of the South, 
Durham, the startup hub of the South. I'm not a part of the startup community, but I pose to be. Uh, I, I promote it, but it's this identifying, I'm a part of this startup community that is happening here in Durham. Gangs have colors, red, blue, as a way of identifying themselves with a certain community. Baptism is the sign for Christians as belonging to a greater community called the church. Jesus and the church go together. So two points of application quickly here. Baptism. If you say that you trust and you follow Jesus, have you been baptized? Baptism is the sign Christ has given to be marked out as part of His community. And if you have not been baptized, we want nothing more in this church than to baptize. We want to see more and more baptisms, more and more people who say, I believe and I want to be identified with Jesus and His people. We would love to talk with you and hopefully baptize you. The second point of application is membership. If you say you follow Jesus, you're not a member of a church, you're not a part of a church, the two go hand in hand, and I'm not by any means saying you have to join Christ Central Church. You don't. Love for you to be a part of any church that believes Christ and preaches the gospel faithfully. But you have to be a part of the church. And, and Timothy announced it. The next two weeks we're doing our discovery class, uh, which is our membership class. We'd love for you to come and to understand what it looks like to be a member. The last thing we see in our passage, we looked at three things. The fourth thing, the last thing in our passage is that a newfound passion for God's mission to the world is given in conversion. A newfound passion for God's mission to the world. I love uh, Ananias in this passage. The Lord calls out Ananias and he says, Here I am, Lord. And then the Lord says, rise and go to the street called Straight. Look for a man named Saul. And I've already said, Ananias, nervous, fearful, questions God. You sure you mean Saul? (laughs) What about somebody else? I mean, this man Saul, he's done evil to your saints. You sure you don't want me going to anybody else, to someone else? And God said, go. And Ananias goes. R.C. Sproul wrote this. It says, everybody loves the call of Jesus to come. To come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that, that, that is a true call that God gives. But many resist the call to go. To go. If you only want to receive from Jesus and not participate with Jesus in His mission, I wonder if you understand what you've received. And that what you received is to be offered to the whole world. If you only receive Jesus as Savior, but you don't follow Him as King, who has a mission of building His kingdom, I wonder if conversion has happened. Conversion is receiving Christ. And then in receiving Christ, a willingness to submit to the Lordship of Jesus and follow Him wherever and however He might call. And Lordship means He has authority over all of your life. Over every area. Over every decision. Over everything. It's not picking and choosing what you want to give Jesus. It's not Jesus in the back seat or Jesus in the passenger seat. It's Him driving and steering your whole life. He has 
the authority. So becoming a Christian means that now you think about everything in life. Your job, how you spend your money, your children, where you live. And you ask Jesus, what do you want me to do with my job, as a job? What do you want me to do with my money? How do you want me to raise my children? Where should I live? All for the sake of furthering your mission in this world. And then when the Lord says, go, we go. And God says to Saul, go as well. He says to Ananias, go. He says to Saul, go. And then in verse 15, he says, he would be the chosen instrument to go to Gentiles, kings, and children. Saul would be changed from one who would do harm to Christ to one who would do anything for Christ. Listen again where he goes. He goes to Gentiles, those who had never heard the gospel of Jesus. He goes to kings, those who are in positions of power and influence. And he goes to children those who were in need. Saul would go to anyone that God would call him to, which means, catch this, that there is, a, there is not a tiered Christianity. There is not a tiered calling in the kingdom of God. It is not more holy to be called to go to the Gentiles than it is to be called to go to the kings. It's not, be, it's not more holy to be called to go to the kings than it is to be called to go to children, those in need. Saul would go to anyone. You're not better if you're called to go overseas to people that have never heard the gospel versus someone who's called to work in Research Triangle Park. You're not a better Christian because you own a business versus someone who doesn't have a job. You're not a better Christian because you live in a nicer or bigger house for someone who has a smaller house. The important thing is that God has called you there, wherever you may be. And He has called you there and you're living there with His mission in mind. So are you proclaiming Christ in your job, on your street, and in the relationships that you have? Because as a church that wants to love this city and love this world, we need people that are working in all kinds of jobs spread out all over the city who are willing to go to any part of the world People who are living here in Durham on the east and the west and the north and the south. Are you listening to God's call? Are you listening? Let me say two things about God's calling. Blow up two assumptions for some of us about God's calling. Some of you need to hear this. That God's call is not always the hard road. God's call is not always the most difficult path. The hard path is not always the most righteous path. But some of you, probably most of you, need to hear that God's call is not always the easiest road. It's not always promised with comfort and money. For the one thing we see about Saul's call in verse 16 is that he would suffer. He would suffer. The road of the Christian is marked with suffering and hardship. But Jesus goes with us, and He promises to work through us for His glory. Converting Osama bin Laden to a U.S. patriot, a Duke fan to a UNC fan, or a UNC fan to a Duke fan, seems impossible. But the conversion 
of someone who is opposed to Christ, who now lives for the mission of God, seems more impossible. But we trust. We trust God's at work. And He's preparing us and He's preparing others. We trust that Jesus will make Himself known and He will be trusted and embraced. We trust that baptisms will occur and people will join His church. And there will be more and more people with a newfound passion for God's mission to the world. God did it for Saul. He can do it for you. He can do it for anyone. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would help us see Jesus. And as a result, our lives be changed. Converted radically and dramatically impacted. So much so that everything we do is through the lens of what's been done for us in Jesus and how we can be on mission to the world for Jesus. God, we thank you and I pray that that you would bear fruit from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.